As we continue uh, now again in our study of Luke's gospel, uh, we come a little bit out of the woods and a little bit onto some more positive teaching from the lips of Jesus. Uh, You might remember in the last several weeks, we've been looking at some of the harder things Jesus has to say about his kingdom, uh, about eternity, about judgment, uh, and about the need for repentance. And this week, uh, as we just heard, there's a little bit of a turn towards hope. Uh, The hopeful growth, the hopeful uh, expansion, and the hopeful uh, inevitability that the kingdom presents. I think this text, uh, these verses together, uh, tell us a lot about what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight, what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, uh, we come uh, to these verses in Luke's gospel, uh, and if you have a good enough memory, you'll remember Uh, many chapters ago, when we were in uh, the early stages of Luke's gospel, chapters uh, 4, 5, and 6, we bumped into other events that mirror this event. Uh, Other, uh, what are called Sabbath confrontation scenarios, where Jesus is doing something on the Sabbath day, something that the Pharisees don't want him to be doing on the Sabbath day, and there's a conflict that arises out of it. And those follow a, a pretty routine and a kind of expected pattern. And if, as readers of the gospel, we're not careful to note the differences or the purposes uh, about why gospel authors include these various accounts, uh, we, can, we can make a mistake and kind of flatten them all into the same general story, right? We would, we would essentially dr- distill them all down into Jesus does something, uh, the Pharisees or some religious authority does not approve, and Jesus proves them wrong, uh, Jesus is right. And, and we, could, we could really level them all out into this kind of flat story. Uh, but the text has much more richness to it. And it's doing something here, even though it follows that kind of arc, it's doing something here differently than what those accounts were doing uh, earlier in Luke's gospel. Uh, In the early accounts of Luke's gospel, chapter 5, Luke is establishing for us a bit of a precedent. He's establishing for us an expectation that we can expect conflict in the ministry of Jesus despite all of the wonderful things that have been going on, right? And up until that point in Luke's gospel, there's very little conflict. You have uh, the angels announcing all this glorious expectancy, all this hope. You have the incarnation. Uh, You have people prophesying over Jesus. You have Jesus being baptized. You have all kinds of glorious things that are happening. And the first note of conflict comes from Satan and the synagogue authorities. The people in the synagogue go against Jesus, and it creates this expectation of he's going to face conflict within his ministry. Well, that's what those accounts were doing earlier in the Gospel of Luke. And at this point, we could conclude one of two things. Either... Luke was sloppy in how he arranged his gospel, and he just happened to jam another Sabbath story in here that is pretty much like the rest and has the same story as the rest. Or, I will contend, that Luke is careful in how he arranges his material, and it's not some haphazard putting together of a manuscript and getting it out to print. It's not like Luke printed, let's say, 100 pages of his gospel, one of the pages got shuffled around, he stapled them together and turned them in, and one of them was out of order. Luke is careful in how he arranges his material, and I want to show that to you tonight with this story. Uh, in, the, in this Sabbath story, in verses 10 all the way through 17, that initial uh, interaction uh, before the teaching of Jesus, you have uh, what, you might, what you might call an answer to what was proposed to us in verse 9. Right? You remember verse 9 of chapter 13 leaves us with a cliffhanger. It's a short parable, verses 6 through 9. And the cliffhanger goes something like this, uh, will the tree bear fruit, right? There's this this note of, 
well, if I come back next year, and if it does not bear fruit then, then I may cut it down, right? And so verse 9 leaves us with this hanging question. Will the tree that has been barren for three years, will it bear fruit in its next year? And another opportunity to encounter and bear fruit, will it bear fruit? And here comes verses 10 through 17 as an answer to the question, will the tree bear fruit? And you'll find your answer uh, in verse 15. When Jesus condemns the response of the synagogue leader and says, you are a hypocrite, which kind of concludes the idea that Luke has introduced to us at the end of chapter 11, that all of the Pharisees and the scribes are hypocrites. And actually, if you trickle it down, it goes straight to the individual leaders of every single synagogue. They're hypocrites as well. When given an opportunity to bear fruit another time, another opportunity for repentance, another opportunity to see the kingdom of heaven move, they reject it nonetheless. It answers the question, will the fig tree bear its fruit? Unfortunately, the answer is no. The, the fig tree is going to remain barren, and thus the judgment is further amplified, given all of the background material. So that's what the text is, is doing in terms of advancing the overall story of Luke's gospel, the overall argument. The argument is something like, the gospel is going to go forth, and can it go forth, even if God's people who are supposed to receive the gospel reject it outright? Even if they remain barren, can the gospel continue to go forward? And I think not only does this, uh, these verses answer the question, yes, but it tells us how it's going to go forward. And so we can, we can ask a number of questions of the text, uh, but I would just like to ask a couple of questions about what the text tells us about the kingdom. Uh, we can ask maybe the first question, who, who is the kingdom for? Who belongs to the kingdom? Who's it coming to rescue? Who's it coming for? Verse 10, uh, we're introduced to this teaching on the Sabbath. It says he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman there who had a spirit that had caused illness for 18 years. She was bent over and unable to stand up completely straight. So when Jesus saw her, this is verse 12, he called her and said to her, woman, you have been released from your illness. And then he placed his hands on her and immediately she was straightened and began glorifying God. So we can ask the question, who is the kingdom of heaven for? Who is the kingdom for? It's for this woman. This woman who has been afflicted, bent over, uh, oppressed by darkness. Uh, it tells us in the text that there's this evil uh, spirit that has caused this affliction in her. That's not to say that every single disease, by the way, is caused by an evil spirit. That's to highlight the spiritual nature of the battle that's going on here. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom which comes and it has tangible realities in the world, just like spiritual forces of darkness have physical ailments that they can cause in the world. So here this woman is oppressed, as it were, by a force of darkness. And uh, as John's gospel says, well, into the darkness comes light. And the light shines in the hearts of men. And the darkness was not able to overcome it. And here comes Jesus, overcoming the evil spirit. And, and with simple commands and the laying on of hands, healing this woman of her illness, straightening her up, setting her right, and here she turns and glorifies God. Now, I don't want you to miss much of what the woman's doing because we're, she's pretty important for the story to understand all that's going on. She is in a culture that wouldn't even have allowed her to worship in the holiest place within any given synagogue. She would have been able to participate in some of the synagogue worship, but not all of the synagogue worship. And for 18 years, she's been afflicted by this ailment and she continues to go to the synagogue year after year after year after year. She doesn't have to get into a car, she has to walk to the synagogue. She has to go and be in the presence of other people who would say she is unclean, who would say that she is unfit, who would say that God's 
judgment on her is her illness. Right? We've seen this before where people think that God's wrath is, is manifest in the brokenness in the world. And so they, they see her illness as a direct manifestation of God's judgment on her. But that's not what's happening in the text. And, and this woman is, let's say, holding on and continuing to go to the synagogue. Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath to worship the Lord and to seek after him. And she goes in a, in a crowd of people who's not going to really welcome her or accept her. And Luke, Luke, I think, specifies this account among all other accounts of Jesus' healings. Uh, and he, he tends to draw out these accounts where it's the least likely person who's going to be healed and who's going to be rescued. That's not to say Jesus doesn't heal men or he doesn't heal Jewish men. The point is, Luke is amplifying something for us in the text that the text is seeking to, to do. She's a faithful God-fearer. She's not turned to false religion. She's not turned to abandoning God. She's not turned to hating God. For 18 years, she has continued to seek the face of God, despite the fact that it seems that God is not answering her, her cries for, for relief. Now, there is much to learn in that. That you and I, in our finite lives, we, we think that, that two weeks of affliction is a hard affliction. Uh, we might say two years of affliction is a hard affliction. And it is. And I don't want to downplay that. But you can draw encouragement, I think, from a woman who's never seen Christ. She doesn't yet, let's say, know of his existence. She, she's not had a recorded account of all the work and glory and, and mercy that he's to pour out. She only knows of, of Yahweh, the merciful God to Israel, and she's going to show up week after week after week to worship this God on the possibility that his mercy would be poured out to her as well. And here Jesus comes as the manifestation of all of God's mercy and love and heals her unexpectedly to her, but as, as, as we know, very intentionally on his own, own behalf. And here she stands as a, as a, as a, a paragon of, of faithfulness, of faithful endurance despite all of the brokenness and disability and affliction and, and dependence that she had. Uh, she goes to seek the face of God in the Sabbath uh, worship service in the synagogue. And she meets Jesus who lays his hand on her and who heals her. And it turns to her glorifying God, verse 13. Uh, and this is the appropriate response. Now, when she glorifies God in, her, in, in response to Jesus healing her, she's doing something that the text is, is making clear to us, is that she is identifying the work of Jesus healing on the Sabbath with the work of God to heal her of her affliction. Now, this, this causes drama. This causes a problem uh, because the synagogue leader can't have Jesus to be vindicated as having done a work on the Sabbath by the power of God. Because this conflicts with the religious leader's understanding of what it means to appropriately observe the Sabbath. But the woman is contending by her worship, her worship is a theological statement, that God is to be glorified for this work. And here the synagogue leader, the ruler of the synagogue, verse 14, he was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he responded and proceeded to say to the crowd, there are six days on which one ought to work, so then come and be healed on them, not on the Sabbath day. Come on any of the other days, not on the Sabbath day. Now, this, this is, it's a strange conflict which arises here. It's a strange way in which the, this man rejects or rebukes Jesus. Um, he, he rejects his work by a, a group uh, rejection of any kind of healing on the Sabbath. This is a little bit like when I was a teacher and I would see a student in class out with their phone and everyone else was taking notes 
And there would be a couple of students maybe with their phones out. I would say, I would just like to remind the class, we're taking notes right now. I'd like you to put your phones away. I'm not talking to everyone. I'm talking to the three kids that did the thing. And this is a little bit what the synagogue leader is doing. He's, he's talking to everyone in the synagogue, but he's talking to Jesus. He's telling Jesus, you shouldn't have done that. But he doesn't want to say to Jesus, don't do that. So he's talking to everyone. He's saying, hey, don't come to be healed on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of rest. So here is the, the rejection of, of the leader of the synagogue, which answers that, that question uh, that was posed in, in verse 9, will the, will the tree bear its fruit? And we might ask the question, did Jesus violate the Sabbath by doing this healing? I think it's a fair question. I think we're not in the West so perplexed by those questions because we don't concern ourselves with the, law of the laws of the Jewish people, uh, I think, to our, to our downfall. Because, because Jesus has to fulfill the law. So Jesus isn't breaking the Sabbath. But the Jewish leader thinks that he's breaking the Sabbath. So where is, where is the misunderstanding? Where is the, where's the disconnect? To observe the Sabbath rightly, as the fourth commandment says, uh, we are to uh, labor for six days and rest for one. It's the pattern of the week. It is the pattern which God gives to his people in creation in the Genesis account and also in the giving of the Ten Commandments. The observance of the Sabbath day, the, the day of the Lord, a day of rest, a rest from your labor and a, and a looking to God and his, his work. This is what the Sabbath does for the Jewish people. In fact, in the, old, in the old, uh, old world, in the first century, the Jewish people were considered to be a rather lazy group of workers because they only worked for six days, not seven. Now, that's strange because we live in the West where we think six days is a lot, five days is a lot, sometimes a four-day work week is a long work week. And the Jews were considered lazy for only working six days and resting on the seventh day because everyone knows if you want to stake your claim in this world, if you want to advance an empire, if you want to propagate a business, you ought to work seven out of seven days. Hustle and bustle, wake up, work to the... So why do the Jewish people do that? Why do they observe the Sabbath so, so tightly? It's because God said, this is a day to rest. You are not to work, you are to rest on this day. Now the question, if Jesus is supposed to fulfill the law and he does a work, a healing, a miracle on the Sabbath day, is he in violation of the Sabbath? Has Jesus just broken the law? Don't skip too quickly past that question. I want you to feel the weight of it. And I want to ask you, how would you answer that question? If someone says, Jesus did break the law, he's telling us the law doesn't matter. He's telling us to ignore the law and to, to go on to better things. Jesus does not break the law. And Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, I came not to undo or to uh, do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. So he doesn't break the Sabbath. He's actually amplifying the glory of the Sabbath by doing this work. Now here's how I can, can get there. Does God rest on the seventh day? In some sense, we would have to say yes, because Genesis says God rests on the seventh day. But in another sense, the fact that the world continues to spin on day seven and that you wake up on day seven and there's food and there's rain and there's uh, order and gravity's still in order and the atoms haven't ripped apart yet. And God continues to work on the seventh day, not necessarily by creation, but by providence, by, by the sustaining of his created world. So God continues to work on the seventh day. So how can we highlight God's working on the seventh day and Jesus here says, I'm highlighting God's work on the seventh day by resting from my work and, and drawing glory to God in the healing work that, that he has done. Now, Jesus is doing this, this work 
Uh, but he's doing it as a, as a man, empowered by the Spirit, to bring glory to God. And obviously Jesus is also God, so he's bringing glory to himself. But the point is, Jesus isn't working in his humanity to earn glory or a place in the world for himself. He's bringing glory to God by the healing work that has been done. And he's, be, he's doing it by the power of God. And so God can work on the Sabbath. And so Jesus can work on the Sabbath, because he's God. And he can bring glory to God on the Sabbath. So Jesus has not violated the Sabbath in any way, shape, or form. And, and the, the religious leader doesn't quite understand that. The religious leader thinks that Jesus has violated the Sabbath because the Jewish people have many interpretations of the law, which are in some sense wonderful because they elucidate what it means and what it doesn't mean. But in some sense, we would say they went too far in how they tightly tried to explain every little detail. Uh, you might have ever heard of the Mishnah or the Talmud. Uh, these are documents the Jewish people and their rabbis had compiled together that help you to understand you know, when God says in, in command number one, uh, you shall have no other gods before me, what's he talking about? How do I violate that? How do I keep it? Okay, next command. On and on and on, all through the, the Torah. So for keeping the Sabbath, they had come up with many rules of how you can and cannot keep the Sabbath. And, and these rules become rather arbitrary when you get down to the very nitty gritty. They seem rather strange to us, and indeed they are. And Jesus... Uh, Jesus is kind of saying, you've misunderstood it. By doing this, he's telling them their interpretation of what it means to keep the Sabbath is wrong. And his interpretation is right. And he's going to prove that by doing a healing miracle, which he could not do apart from the power of God, and then bringing glory to God by his teaching. And this woman recognizes it in verse 14, that this is Jesus working by the power of God, and therefore uh, she glorifies God. And in verse 14, that, that causes the problem where the religious leader turns and, and essentially rejects Jesus. Now this rejection in general, uh, this, this contention that the religious leader brings is a, is a rejection of Jesus, uh, but it's not a good rejection of Jesus. And many commentators have many things to say. I would like to orient you to what John Calvin says on this text when he's, he's responding to the religious leader and commenting on his, his objection. And he says this, uh, such a combination of both malice and stupidity could easily be exposed in many ways, but Christ satisfies himself only with a single argument to disprove the claim. So the religious leader, in, in his, his malice, his, his, his disgust, is going to raise an argument, and Calvin says uh, it could be easily exposed in a, in a multiplicity of ways. In, in many ways, this could be disproven, but Christ satisfies himself only with one, one way of disproving the law, or the, this guy claim that Christ has violated the law. In verse 15, Jesus responds to him and says, hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from its stall and after leading it out, give it water? So uh, wouldn't you treat your animal uh, by, by preparing food for it, leading it to the food, untying it? Wouldn't you work on behalf of your animal to give it what it needs, what is needful for it? You would do that and you allow for that in the law. And in fact, all of you do it now his argument from the lesser to the greater essentially goes, is this not daughter of Abraham not more worthwhile to show works of mercy to? Verse 16, so shouldn't this woman who is a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound for 18 years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? What a better way to celebrate the Sabbath than to set a woman free from her bondage. 
There is no better way to celebrate the Sabbath day than to set someone free of their enslavement by Satan. And, and we, can, we can comment rightly, Jesus has to satisfy himself with just this one argument because there are too many arguments to make to disprove the claim of the man. Uh, he could have picked any of the laws to point to, to say this is an arbitrary rule, I can do this on the Sabbath, it's, it's a right in keeping with the Sabbath. He chooses just the one, hey, you take better care of your oxen than your law permits for you to take care of this woman on the Sabbath. Uh, that's out of line. This woman is a daughter of Abraham. She's part of my people. I'm going to heal her on the Sabbath. That's a good argument. <laughs> that is a very good argument. And uh, we notice by the, res- the non-response of the religious leader uh, that there's no substantial rebuttal laid claim. Now, I don't know how all that shakes out. I don't really know, by the way, how you close out a worship service after something like this happens. Right? Jesus is teaching. He heals a woman. Someone stands up in the crowd and says, hey, you can't do that. It's a violation of the Sabbath. Jesus rebukes him by misinter- not misinterpreting, but disagreeing with their interpretation of the law. I, I don't really know. I mean, do you just pray and sing and then you know, head out at that point? I don't really know <laughs> how you walk away from, from that service. Uh, but this is, this is what happened. This is what we have. And, and in verse 17, uh, Jesus is going to... Uh, essentially elicitate a response from the crowd. As he said all these things, all who were opposing him were put to shame. His enemies are put to shame. And the whole crowd was rejoicing at the wonderful things which were being done by him. Now, those statements can both not be absolutely true because the whole crowd refers to, let's say, the vast majority of the crowd. It doesn't refer to every single individual person who stands within the crowd because we were just told earlier in verse 17 that, all, that there are all those who were opposing him, they are put to shame, and then it says, and the whole crowd was rejoicing. So it's not every single person in the crowd. There are some who have rejected him. They have been put to shame. And there's a, let's say, an innumerable majority of the crowd who is worshiping God. So the whole means most of. Most of the crowd is rejoicing in the wonderful things which were being done by him. And then he is going to proceed to say, or he's going to turn to say, or he's going to say, so then, verse 18, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Now, you might say that his parables here don't really seem to follow with what he's just done. But I think he's expounding and explaining what he's just done. So let's see if we can, we can try to make sense of it. Verse 19, what is the kingdom of heaven like? It is like a mustard seed that a man took and tossed into his garden. And it grew and it became a tree. And the birds of the air nested within its branches. So, parable number one, parable of the mustard seed. What is the kingdom of heaven like? Uh, It's like this tiny little seed you plant in a garden. It grows bigger than all of the garden plants, and even birds can take refuge within it. Simple illustration. What does that have to do with, with what just happened in the synagogue? Don't scorn the little mustard seed size of the, of the kingdom because of what it will become. This woman, for 18 years, has been ignored by everybody. Uh, you might think this healing to be insignificant, uh, but this healing is a mustard seed that will expand and grow and explode into a kingdom. Because this woman is now counted within the kingdom of God, and this small band of disciples and, and this one Messiah and all of the people they encounter, they're going to change the world. And Jesus is essentially saying, just because the Jewish religious authorities have rejected me, doesn't mean that it's any less or more of a mustard seed. It's a small little thing when it starts. The woman is not, let's say, insignificant 
in the kingdom of God, even though she was insignificant to almost everyone around her. It's like this little mustard seed thing. It's small and it expands and it grows to this innumerably sized tree. And again, he says in verse 20, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like leaven, or we might say yeast, that a woman took and worked into it three measures of flour until the whole was completely leavened. So now the second illustration, much the same as the mustard seed illustration, but from a different angle. Uh, a little bit of leaven, as we've heard before, leavens the whole lump. You might be familiar with that elsewhere in scripture. Uh, here the leaven is told that you mix it in with a lot of flour, and it, all it takes is a little bit of leaven. It'll do the trick. It'll, it'll raise the whole batch. Now, if you know about baking, uh, you would know how that works. If you don't know about baking, just trust that it works. <laughs> it's, it's an imperceivable small movement in which the whole, whole dough is raised. Uh, and all it takes is a little bit of yeast to get that started because the yeast can multiply within the dough itself to create more of the leavening. So a little bit of yeast can do the whole trick. Little tiny mustard seed can grow a whole plant. And this is what the kingdom of heaven is described as. So uh, we, might, we might say, well, what is, what is this, what has this got to do with the healing of the woman, the answer to the, fi the fig tree, right? The fig tree in verse 9 uh, of, of this chapter, you remember the conclusion is, this is this fully mature fig tree, it's put out its leaves, it bears no fruit. It has everything going for it to be a successful garden plant and it's fruitless. And here Jesus turns, he heals a woman, and he says, here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's not like this mature fig tree that bears no fruit. It's like this tiny little seed that will bear much fruit. It's, it's different than the fig tree. It's not established right now. It's in seed form, but it will grow and it will expand. And, and that's in contrast to the fig tree, which is mature in every single way and yet completely fruitless and barren. So this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It is a, it is a productive tree, which has a great future, we might say. Now, at the time that Jesus is saying that, you have to remember, uh, Christianity hasn't shaped the culture, right? Christianity is the new kid on the block when it comes to uh, faith, right? You have, it's really a sect of Judaism. There's, there's Judaism and there's Judaism that acknowledges Jesus as Messiah. And within the early church for the first hundred years, those two things are almost identical with one another where basically the Roman Empire considers Christians and Jews to be in a theological disagreement within the same religion. That's until 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. And then Christianity really is kind of standing on its own legs, oppressed on its own front by the Roman Empire. And after about 300 years of that kind of oppression, Christianity becomes the official state religion of the Roman Empire. And the rest has shaped all of Western history as we know it. Uh, it has shaped our language. Uh, if you know uh, the King James Bible, which essentially shaped how people taught and learned English for hundreds of years. Uh, it has shaped our, our understanding of morality, even if you look at the, the Constitution of the United States or any other constitutional document in any Western country, it will be shaped and influenced and informed by the morals of scripture. In fact, we might say the whole of the world, the Western world, is, is being propped up by, in some way or another, the flavor of the Christian church, which has gone forward in its mustard seed form to expand and to infiltrate and to conquer much of, much of the world. Now that's not to say, that's not to say that Christianity at any point in time will be some dominant empire, uh, that you could point to it and say there is Christianity 
and they march against us and we are not Christianity, something like that. I think that would be a misunderstanding of what, what the, the point of the text is. The point of the text is that Christianity will be influential and it will have this vast impact and it will create a place in which birds can shelter in. It will create a place of peace. The idea of a tree that you can shelter underneath its branches is a tree often used in the Old Testament prophets to depict peace or a, a, time, of, a time of rest. And so the, the purpose is the kingdom starts small, it grows big, and at the end of the kingdom growing, there is peace. There is rest. Uh, everyone can rest in the arms or in the branches of this kingdom. And Jesus is saying that's what his kingdom is like. So we could say it grows slowly. It grows uh, inevitably. Right? The mustard seed will grow to this, this large tree. Uh, but we might say with the, the second parable, verse 21, because we were told that it's like leaven, uh, we're, we can also understand that it grows almost, we would say, imperceptibly. It, almost, it grows invisibly. Uh, if you had a microscope and modern technology, you could understand how the yeast works its way through the, through the bread. In, in that time, you might as well tell them it, it's, it's going to happen, but we don't know how it happens. It, it works in a way that you can't perceive or put your finger on or understand the inner workings of. Uh, it's an invisible kind of growth. And this, I think, uh, if, if you've ever had an experience in the, the Western church in America, I think this is, this is much like what you see the kingdom growing as. You know, you talk to someone, they share the gospel with you, you go home, you go to sleep, you don't think anything of it. Three weeks later, you can't get it out of your head. An imperceptible seed has been planted and it has grown without your perception, it has grown you under conviction, and it has grown in you this sense of needing to be reconciled with God. And you just multiply that by not only your own experience, but the experience of almost anyone who's ever been converted to Christ. This, it's, it's imperceptible. It's almost unexplainable. Uh, as, as, John, as Jesus says to Nicodemus in the Gospel of John chapter 3, uh, you don't even know which way the wind blows, but you see the effects of it. You can't see the kingdom growing, but you can see the effect of the kingdom moving. Uh, so it is here. The kingdom grows by this means of an invisible expansion. And the invisible expansion does its job. It, it accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish. Uh, when the leaven is, is working its way through, it leavens the whole loaf. Uh, when the mustard seed is growing, it, it plants in, until it's a mature plant. Uh, so the kingdom of God grows until it is a mature kingdom. Now that does not mean that it grows in some perfectly linear fashion, or you could draw a perfect line all the way through. I think that would be to press the use of this illustration too far. But how does, how does this kingdom grow? Let's say, even if you're looking at the ministry of Jesus, we know that the kingdom of God is being inaugurated by him, he said, if you see me casting out demons by the finger of God, you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here he's, he's doing miracles by the kingdom of God, releasing this woman from her, her enslavement, her, her oppression. And he, he goes forward and, and he's actually going to face rejection first before he's going to face his, his death, glory, and ascension. So he's going to first be rejected, he's going to be put to death, and you're going to say, well, there is the end of his kingdom illustration because the seed has just been killed. And then the seed rises again and burst forth, and then you might say, well, that's all well and good, but he left, and he left just 12 people behind. And those 12 people grow and expand, but they're also persecuted in the book of Acts. They grow and they are persecuted. They expand and people abandon them. They grow churches and those churches apostatize. Uh, it's not this perfectly linear expansion uh, where anyone who's ever touched by the kingdom turns to gold, like Midas. That's not the point. The point is the kingdom accomplishes its purposes, which God has set forth for it to accomplish. This is, this is the inevitability 
you might say, of the kingdom of God. So when we pray the prayer, your kingdom come, we don't pray that because we hope that it will come. We pray that because we've been told that it will come. Uh, we, when we look to Jesus and we ask the question, who is the one working to grow the kingdom? Uh, we have to answer the question, well, it's not, it's not me. It's not my sharing of the gospel. Uh, it's not me who convinces people in their hearts that they need saving. It is Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit and the, the glory of his word going forward that, that does all that work. So the kingdom doesn't grow by, our, by human power. Uh, it does not grow by human really understanding or perception. We can see the effects of it, but we can't really rationalize our way behind it. Uh, but we certainly as Christians, I think, can appreciate it. If you've, if you've ever had the pleasure of studying church history, or maybe just picking up a book that, that summarizes the history of the Christian church from, let's say, the time it was conceived until today. If you've never done that, I would encourage you at some point within the next year or two, add that to your reading library or listen to a podcast about it, or, or get some kind of learning regarding the providence of God at work in his church to grow it. Church history tells us much about how God has been pleased to work to preserve his church throughout all ages. And it's edifying to see how God fulfills these promises like th that, that we read here in the text. And then, it, and then you look at the Western church today and you think about all the things that are going bad for us in the culture and in the world, and you think, uh, this, is never, this is nothing we've never seen before. Uh, we, we, are, we are actually in our comfort zone right now when the culture is primed against us. That's, that's actually how the kingdom grows. As Tertullian would say, the blood of the martyrs is seed for the church. So this is how the kingdom grows. It grows even in the face of oppression. Uh, it grows to incorporate people who others would say are not to be incorporated with the kingdom because it's a forgiving God who mercifully seeks out his people to bring them into the kingdom. Now, a couple of broader observations that I want to make of the text before I kind of bring this all together. Firstly, while it is true that the woman, let's say, goes faithfully week after week on the Sabbath, I want to point out that Jesus, when he heals her, it's, it's he who spots her, it's he who heals her, and it's he who receives glory from all that. She doesn't go to him and ask for healing, right? We've seen other accounts in Luke's gospel where the faith of the woman is, is magnified, uh, or, or the, the persistence of the Gentile is, is magnified, right? In this case, it is essentially Jesus all the way down. He goes to the synagogue. He sees the woman. He can't help but heal the woman. He kind of takes it all upon himself to, to save her from her destitute state. Uh, she just needs to essentially look destitute, right? And he does all of it. I think that ought not to be lost on us because if we, if we misconstrue the, the, the content of Scripture... We can walk away with it from the text where it says, oh, it is by the great faith that, that God has saved you. We can walk away and saying, so I need great faith and then God will save me. Uh, or you have texts like this that actually don't mention faith at all and it just mentions the God saving part. And if we try to combat those against each other, uh, we end up in, in weird places. This text makes clear that it is, it is God all the way through that does the saving. Uh, and in this case, even in spite of, let's say, the absence of faith, the, the fact that this woman doesn't really confess or profess any kind of faith. She's faithful, she's part of the faithful group, uh, but she's probably no more faithful in that sense than the synagogue leader, just that God is pleased to save her uh, from her state. So we might say that this doesn't point us necessarily to the magnitude of faith, it points us to the mercy of God, that, that in, without being prompted, it just is moved to compassion to save people from their affliction. Uh, this, is, uh, this describes the heart of God for his people elsewhere in scripture where 
the Jewish people don't cry out for saving from Pharaoh, but God is moved to compassion because he hears the groans of his people, or he sees his people in their state, and he goes to save them. So here we see the mercy of God kind of at work in this text. The other piece which, which we ought to observe and possibly reflect on and possibly repent of is, is this synagogue leader and, and kind of all that he's doing in the text. The synagogue leader would have been the person in that community who's foremost respected in understanding of the Torah. A respectable person is not a rabbi, so we wouldn't say it's someone who's been educated in those schools, but it would have been someone who would have known the Torah inside and out well enough to be charged with the task of keeping this synagogue and guarding it and shepherding it. We'd say the synagogue leader is probably like a lay elder in a church. Is, is not a full-time person, but it's someone who's regularly ministering within the congregation to observe and to keep and to shepherd those who are coming week after week. It is this person who we find most opposed to the Messiah. And he's not opposing to the Messiah on any other ground other than, well, his theology doesn't allow for it. And, and here comes, here comes the, the problematic part where we know from Jesus' explanation about their, their own inconsistency in interpreting the Sabbath that their theology isn't actually life-giving. It, it's, it's an oppression or a yoke or a burden that they put on people. That is true of Judaism, yes, but I, it's just as true 2,000 years later in Christianity. You can have Christian legalism where the yoke of oppression is on someone and you have doctrine that you know and that you articulate in such a way where someone walks away feeling like this is a burden for me to bear, something for me to do or to observe, not something that has any kind of good news attached to it. Uh, this is something that is, is oppressive and this is not something that is life-giving. I think that all doctrine, all theology, rightly understood, is life-giving. It is fruitful, it glorifies God. And it provides comfort and rest and assurance for his people. All theology. And if you think about theology that you've learned, let's say, recently or in your lifetime, and you struggle to make the connection between it being a good, wonderful, and beautiful thing, I would challenge you to, to learn it more. Wrestle with it more. Because theology is, is beautiful. It tells us, for example, if you, were, if you were to take a doctrine like God's sovereignty over the world, and you just use that as a catch-all to tell people they shouldn't complain about suffering because God's sovereign over their suffering. You've not gotten to the beautiful part yet, which is that God is in their suffering to work and to will his good pleasure, and he's in control of it all. There's a, there's a beauty to it. There's a beauty to the doctrine that you need to get to in order for the doctrine to be lovely and edifying and growth, and to cause growth. That would, that would be good, true theology. It causes life-giving, it has a life-giving nature to it. A, a, maybe we can say it this way, with, with regards to the Sabbath, a true, right understanding of the Sabbath would say things like, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. So that the Sabbath is for man to enjoy, to rest, and to rest from his work. It is not a tool for you to guilt people into not healing someone who's afflicted on this day. That's not what the Sabbath is for. That's not the point of it. And we might say that theology rightly understood is always God-glorifying, and it is always life-giving for God's people. It encourages, it strengthens, it, it comforts. I would say all the way down to theologies like the depravity of the human heart. You might say, well, how could a theology like that be comforting? The brokenness of man. Well, it's comforting because it is in spite of the brokenness and with, with a knowledge of human's brokenness, 
that God set about his purposes of saving. So that when you see someone who's in their lowest state, their most sinful, who's just done the most wicked things that you can imagine, things that you can't even understand or rationalize, you can still look that person in the face and say, I have a gospel for you because the gospel is still here on offer for you. Because God knew your sin when he sent his son. There's nothing, uh, there, there, there's a beauty to that, right? That's very different than you uh, guilting someone into confessing a sin that they're not so sure is sinful. And, and there's a difference between those kinds of, those two ways of using theology as a life-giving truth or as a tool to wield and condemn people with. I think this is what we see in the synagogue leader. The, the misunderstanding of theology can cause great harm. And there are, there are certain sin tendencies in the world. Uh, there are certain sin, t- sin tendencies in culture. There are certain sin tendencies in certain kinds of churches. And I think within our church, within our community, the sin tendency is probably not going to be towards, well, do whatever you want, God doesn't care. Our sin tendency is more so going to be the sin tendency that the, the synagogue leader here exemplifies. The tendency to see the doctrine, see the theology, stop there, never ask why is it beautiful, lovely, or life-giving. And we need to be aware of that. Scripture is a life-giving word, breathed, given by God to his people to encourage them, to strengthen them, to, to be their daily bread so they can exist in the world and survive. And we ought to treat it like that when we read it for ourselves and when we minister it to others. And when you disciple someone and they're struggling, uh, having de- theology like that is better than having all the right answers to questions. Because a lot of times the right answers to questions, they're just not satisfying but a life-giving theology that is the right answer and, and beautiful, right? As, as David says in Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You gotta taste it, you gotta see it, and you can experience the goodness of God by means of his doctrine. The second observation on that point is that doctrine and theology are not opposed to practical life-giving truth. Doctrine and theology rightly understood lead to practical life-giving truth. So we ought not to pit doctrine as some stuffy old thing over here that is useful for academic learning and seminaries and certain people for reading, but it's divorced from how we live, let's say on the ground and minister to people. Good doctrine, good theology, directly either bleeds dry our ministry to people or amplifies it and and livens it. That would be theology and doctrine rightly understood. And I think Jesus understands the Sabbath rightly, which is why I think he's got it right and why his theology of the Sabbath leads to the liberation of the woman and her freedom from oppression. And we can oppose him to the synagogue leader who I think understands it wrongly or poorly or shallowly and thus misuses and abuses the Sabbath doctrine to afflict the woman. But we see that the life-giving truth is actually what prevails. And then we can step back from this text and we can ask the, the, the really lovely question. Okay, all this has been... I've told you all this. I've shown it to you here in the text. Now you can ask the question, how can I be sure that all of what we've just said is true? How can I be sure that that this is a real truth that I can hold on to and not just something that was written down in the text that is being read to you right now? Well, we can be sure that all of this is true, not just a reflection of one narrative of reality, but the true reality, the true story of the world. Uh, Because when Jesus rises from the grave, he's a visible testimony to the truth and the veracity of all that God has said and done through him. And, and you can go look at the historical arguments for Jesus. Uh, you can look at a multiplicity of arguments, but the one thing you, you cannot shake, and I would say maybe a, do, a dominant theology or understanding of the church today, would be that you cannot shake the fact that whatever this book is, 
uh, it has resulted in the church promulgating to the size and capacity and scope and effect that it has had currently in the world. And if it, this was just some unhinged rabbi who was saying things and doing things that were weird, uh, do you really think it would have had that kind of an influence? Do you really think the church would have grown to this size with all of the affliction that it's faced, with all of the disagreement internally that it's faced, with all of the persecution that it's faced? Do you really think that the church would have existed today if it was just some unhinged rabbi saying things in the first century? Or, possibly, the best explanation, not only for the testimony of the apostles unto death, but also the abiding reality of the church today as, as you see it and as it's, as it's writing and influencing the world even still, I think the best explanation for that is that this is really true. Jesus did do this. Uh, Jesus is real. He works by his spirit. And that's the best explanation for how people from all different backgrounds, creeds, confessions, worldviews can come together and worship the Lord on Sunday. I think that's the best explanation for, for why we can gather with people who we don't have much in common with besides the fact that we worship the same Lord. It's the best explanation. So how can we be sure that this is true? Jesus was vindicated. He really rose from the grave. He died on the cross for our sins as a, as a seal that all these things are true. And he currently rules in his church through his body over the world. He works through his people. And if you want to know, uh, is his church alive? Is it, is it vibrant? Does his spirit work? Uh, you just got to hang out with the church for long enough. You will see it. You will see the church loving in ways that you can't really explain. You'll see the church ministering in ways that don't really make sense. And you will see this vibrancy of life to the church that is hard elsewhere to explain and do away with. There's no other religious system, orthodoxy, doctrinal system that can do any of those things. And if you don't believe me, uh, you just have to live life with the body and see it happen, see it manifest, see it growing and living and breathing. And I think that is also just as much as an encouragement to the world I think it's uh, an encouragement to the church to keep your witness vibrant. Keep your, uh, your ministry vibrant in the world as you minister with coworkers, as you interact with friends, family, whoever it is, uh, that they would, uh, they would be able to smell and taste God on you as you live and breathe and, and move and interact with them. Because it's just as much a challenge to us Christians as it is to uh, uh, apologetic against the world or, or towards the world to show, us, show them how lovely what we have really is. With that, let me just close in a word of prayer so we can continue now in some more worship. God, you are sovereign over all things. And we recognize that even as we have read these words tonight and if we've reflected on them, that we are dependent on you to take these truths and sear them into our hearts. If it would not be for your work, uh, we would forget this just like we forget lots of things in our lives. But Lord, your word is truth. And you are sovereign over your people. And we pray uh, as, as members of your body that you would rule and reign over us in such a way uh, that we are different, that we are changed, uh, that your word would impact us, would move us, would, that we would see the beauty of it. And that it would edify us so that when we go out to the world, uh, the world would unquestionably have to contend that we have something lovely. Lord, we ask for your grace as we, as we live. Uh, we ask for your mercy as we will fall short. Uh, we ask for your strength as we will need it for the journey ahead. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.